0: first part of chapter 5 of the second volume of the life of reason this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by daniel fraser the life of reason by george santayana democracy as an end and as a means natural democracy leads to monarchy the word democracy may stand for a natural social equality in the body politic or for a constitutional form of government in which power lies more or less directly in the people's hands. The former may be called social democracy, and the latter democratic government. The two differ widely, both in origin and in moral principle. Genetically considered, social democracy is something primitive, unintended, proper to communities where there is general competence and no marked personal eminence. It is the democracy of Arcadia, Switzerland and the American pioneers. Such a community might be said to have also a democratic government, for everything in it is naturally democratic. There will be no aristocracy, no prestige, but instead an intelligent readiness to lend a hand and to do in unison whatever is done, not so much under leaders as by a kind of conspiring instinct and contagious sympathy. In other words, there will be that most democratic of governments—no government at all. But when pressure of circumstances, danger, or inward strife makes recognised and prolonged guidance necessary to a social democracy, the form its government takes is that of a rudimentary monarchy, established by election or general consent. A natural leader presents himself, and he is instinctively obeyed. He may indeed be freely criticised and will not be screened by any pomp or traditional mystery. He will be easy to replace, and every citizen will feel himself radically his equal. Yet such a state is at the beginnings of monarchy and aristocracy, close to the stage depicted in Homer, where pre-eminences are still obviously natural, although already over-emphasised by the force of custom and wealth, and by the fission of society into divergent classes. Artificial democracy is an extension of privilege. Political democracy, on the other hand, is a late and artificial product. It arises by a gradual extension of aristocratic privileges, through rebellion against abuses, and in answer to restlessness on the people's part. Its principle is not the absence of eminence, but the discovery that existing eminence is no longer genuine and representative. It is compatible with a very complex government great empire and an aristocratic society it may retain as notably in england and in all ancient republics many vestiges of older and less democratic institutions for under democratic governments the people have not created the state they merely control it their suspicions and jealousies are quieted by assigning to them a voice perhaps only of veto, in the administration but the state administered is a prodigious self-created historical engine. Popular votes never established the family, private property, religious practices or international frontiers. Institutions, ideals and administrators may all be such as the popular classes could never have produced, but these products of natural aristocracy are suffered to subsist so long as no very urgent protest is raised against them the people's liberty consists not in their original responsibility for what exists, for they are guiltless of it, but merely in the faculty they have acquired of abolishing any detail that may distress or wound them, and of imposing any new measure, which seen against the background of existing laws, may commend itself from time to time to their instinct and mind. Ideals and expedients. If we turn from origins to ideals, The contrast between social and political democracy is no less marked. Social democracy is a general ethical ideal, looking to human equality and brotherhood, and inconsistent in its radical form with such institutions as the family and hereditary property. Democratic government, on the contrary, is merely a means to an end, an expedient for the better and smoother government of certain states at certain junctures. It involves no special ideals of life. It is a question of policy, namely, whether the general interest will be better served by granting all men, and perhaps all women, an equal voice in elections. For political democracy, arising in great and complex states, must necessarily be a government by deputy, and the questions actually submitted to the people can be only very large, rough matters of general policy, or of confidence in party leaders. We may now add a few reflections about each kind of democracy, regarding democratic government chiefly in its origin and phases, for its function is that of all government, and social democracy chiefly as an ideal, since its origin is simply that of society itself. Well-founded distrust of rulers, yet experts, if rational, would serve common interests. The possibility of intelligent selfishness and the prevalence of a selfishness far from intelligent unite to make men wary in entrusting their interests to one another's keeping. If passion never overcame prudence, and if private prudence always cancelled what was profitable also to others, no objection could arise to an aristocratic policy. For if we assume a certain variety in endowments and functions among men, it would evidently conduce to the general convenience that each man should exercise his powers, uncontrolled by the public voice. The government, having facilities for information and ready resources, might be left to determine all matters of policy. For its members' private interests would coincide with those of the public, and even if prejudices and irrational habits prevented them from pursuing their own advantage, they would surely not err more frequently or more egregiously in that respect than would the private individual, to whose ignorant fancy Every decision would otherwise have to be referred. Thus, in monarchy, every expedient is seized upon to render the king's and the country's interests coincident. Public prosperity fills his treasury, the arts adorn his court, justice rendered confirms his authority. If reason were efficacious, kings might well be left to govern alone. Theologians, under the same hypothesis, might be trusted to draw up creeds and codes of morals and in fact everyone with a gift for management or creation might be authorised to execute his plans. It is in the same way, perhaps, that some social animals manage their affairs, for they seem to cooperate without external control. That their instinctive system is far from perfect we may safely take for granted. But government too is not always adequate or wise. What spoils such a spontaneous harmony is that people neither understand their own interests nor have the constancy to pursue them systematically, and further that their personal or animal interests may actually clash, in so far as they have not been harmonised by reason. To rationalise an interest is simply to correlate it with every other interest which it at all affects. In proportion as rational interests predominate in a man, and he esteems rational satisfactions above all others, it becomes impossible that he should injure another by his action and unnecessary that he should sacrifice himself. But the worse and more brutal his nature is, and the less satisfaction he finds in justice, the more need he has to do violence to himself, lest he should be doing it to others. This is the reason why preaching, conscious effort, and even education are such feeble agencies for moral reform. Only selection and right breeding could produce that genuine virtue which would not need to find goodness unpalatable, nor to say, in expressing its own perversities, that a distaste for excellence is a condition of being good. But when a man is ill-begotten and foolish, and hates the means to his own happiness, he naturally is not well fitted to secure that of other people. Those who suffer by his folly are apt to think him malicious, whereas he is the first to suffer himself, and knows that it was the force of circumstances and a certain pathetic helplessness in his own soul that led him into his errors. People Jealous of Eminence These errors, when they are committed by a weak and passionate ruler, are not easily forgiven. His subjects attribute to him an intelligence he probably lacks. They call him treacherous or cruel, when he is very likely yielding to lazy habits and to insidious traditions. They see in every calamity that befalls them a proof that his interests are radically hostile to theirs whereas it is only his conduct that is so. Accordingly, in proportion to their alertness and self-sufficiency, they clamour for the right to govern themselves, and usually secure it. Democratic government is founded on the decay of representative eminence. It indicates that natural leaders are no longer trusted merely because they are rich, enterprising, learned, or old. Their spontaneous action would go awry. They must not be allowed to act without control, men of talent may be needed and used in a democratic state they may be occasionally hired but they will be closely watched and directed by the people who fear otherwise to suffer the penalty of foolishly entrusting their affairs to other men's hands a fool says a spanish proverb knows more at home than the wise man at his neighbours so democratic instinct assumes that unless all those concerned keep a vigilant eye on the course of public business and frequently pronounce on its conduct, they will, before long, awake to the fact that they have been ignored and enslaved. The implication is that each man is the best judge of his own interests, and of the means to advance them. Or at least that by making himself his own guide, he can, in the end, gain the requisite insight, and thus not only attain his practical aims, but also some political and intellectual dignity. It is representative. All just government pursues the general good. The choice between aristocratic and democratic forms touches only the means to that end. One arrangement may well be better fitted to one place and time, and another to another. Everything depends on the existence or non-existence of available practical eminence. The democratic theory is clearly wrong if it imagines that eminence is not naturally representative. Eminence is synthetic, and represents what it synthesises. An eminence not representative would not constitute excellence, but merely extravagance or notoriety. Excellence in anything, whether thought, action or feeling, consists in nothing but representation, in standing for many diffuse constituents reduced to harmony, so that the wise moment is filled with an activity in which the upshot of the experience concerned is mirrored and regarded, an activity just to all extant interests, and speaking in their total behalf. But anything approaching such true excellence is as rare as it is great, and a democratic society, naturally jealous of greatness, may be excused for not expecting true greatness, and for not even understanding what it is. A government is not made representative, or just, by the mechanical expedient of electing its members by universal suffrage, It becomes representative only by embodying in its policy, whether by instinct or high intelligence, the people's conscious and unconscious interests. End of chapter five, part one.